For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week's guest is Cat Williams, freaking Cat Williams. Not much to say, it's Cat Williams from being Cat Williams. Cat's 12th special, World War III, is new on Netflix, and unbelievably to me, because he is Cat Williams, he agreed to do this podcast, like this specific one you're about to listen to. We're going to play a joke from World War III about chicken. It, it, it does involve two perfect Cat Williams act-outs, one of which where he, he physically embodies a chicken. Uh, just when that happens, imagine Cat Williams being a chicken, and you'll sort of get there. Though I do recommend watching it. Otherwise, you'll get what's happening. One other note, Kat's audio during the interview isn't the best, but it's worth it, and you'll be able to hear everything he says. So, here is Cat Williams. Lies run the world. Better respect it. Lies run the world. Every, for every time one lie gets told, one million people make one million dollars. For every lie, you know who the fuck paid for it? Whoever the fuck don't know, it's a lie. That's who the fuck paid for it. Yep. And they lie to all of us, some of us. Look at white people, not us, yes. (laughs) All of us, they lie to us all together. They told all of us in here, there's a chicken wing shortage. and creeds all agreed. They sure did say that. They told all of us it's a chicken wing shortage. And no matter how much we all love chicken, we didn't riot in the streets. We didn't burn burger places down. We just believed them. But liars always leave a clue. <laughs> they think they smarter than them ears. They say it to all of us, there is a chicken wing shortage. Did you notice they did not say it was a shortage of chickens? wing shortage. But they did not say it was a shortage of chickens. Now I know some of y'all don't grow up on the farm. Maybe you don't see a chicken every day. But try to envision in your mind what a chicken looks like.
Because if a liar can get you to believe some shit, they don't stop there. They double that. <laughs> Just so you knew they was lying, they said some shit next that don't even make mathematical sense. They said, there's a chicken wing shortage, but we got plenty of thighs. but I will tell you this. All chicken wings come from a chicken. They get two wings, two thighs. Don't start talking about you got a whole bunch of thighs. Where the fuck you getting these spider leg chickens from? See, the problem is, some of y'all believe in God, some of y'all believe in science. I believe in both. Science might have done some things, and God did some things. Science might have made a lot of shit, but God made the chicken. You ain't gonna tell me God made the chicken. He did that for the world. That's how you know it's from God. What group of people don't fuck with chicken? Look at the vegans, it's just us. God made the chicken. That bitch ain't safe nowhere. Every time a chicken's foot hit the ground, somebody wanna put that bitch in Greece. In China, in France, in Europe, in Mississippi. How you know God made it? Cause that bird is the most delicious bird. In the whole world. And that motherfucker came flat. Cause God loves you. If chickens could fly, half the motherfuckers in here be dead right now. If you had to, if you had to catch your own two-piece, you'll die. You just in the backyard. That was a spicy combo, too. I can't keep missing these opportunities. I am here with Cat Williams. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So um, we're, we're going to talk about the chicken joke from your recent special. But before we talk about that joke, which opens a special, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up how you opened your last special, Great America, which... Uh, was a has become a legend among comedians I've talked to, specifically how you started by doing 12 minutes on Jacksonville. Um, there are just a couple things that are really amazing about that. First is, how does a comedian come up with 12 incredibly specific minutes about a place he doesn't currently live? And how do you do material about the 12th largest city in America that works for the whole country who might not know anything about it? So with that, you know, how do you go about an opener like that? And how do you decide to include all that in that special? All right. So to answer that multifaceted question, I am on each special 
trying to showcase and utilize a different comedy skill set. So that particular special that you speak of was me trying to take it to its lowest common denominator to get closest to the being that I was when I originally started, Mm. where I was overwhelmingly impressed with every place that I was going and that it was a new experience and what this place had that other Mm. places didn't have. I would be in your town for three to four days. I got show a show on Thursday, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. I'm here, I'm there. Mm. I'm, at, I'm at the best restaurant. I'm at the barber shop. I'm at the club. I'm at the strip club. I'm everywhere that I need to be mm. to do this stand-up thing that I do in real time. Mm. So even though I had done specials where it could be lofty. That special was about taking it back down to its real essence. So I was not just doing 12 minutes about that. I would do 12 minutes about your city when I came to Mm -hmm. your city too. So that is how that was possible. And this latest special, I just picked all conversations that I thought no comedian could have They couldn't take these topics and make a comedy conversation Mm. out of this. And and so that is kind of what my calling card is comedically, because I can't guarantee if everything that I say is going to be the funniest thing that you've heard about this subject. What I'm trying to do is guarantee that all of my conversations will be original conversations that only I singular as a comedian am having with this base and um, right or wrong, funny, not funny, thought provoking, stupid, whatever it turns out to be. The goal is for it to be original Mm. and to be delivered in a different way and a different circumstance every time. As we get into talking about your process, I uh, I wanted to start with the fact that you, you recently talked about that you don't work your material out first in clubs. Um, when and how did you make this decision? Was there a specific incident or series of incidents that you you realized you're just going to start w- with the tour? Like with everything, it's a, it was a natural evolution for me. So I loved working in the clubs and being a club comic and I loved everything that that brought and the only part that I kind of had a problem with is I didn't like even though the comics were friends and I thought they were funny I didn't like listening to a lot of other comedians takes on things Mm. because influences my take Mm. and it it for better or for worse if it's closer to what you and everybody else is thinking or saying it's going the wrong way for me so I would I was so worried I had been so victimized other comics have been so victimized by joke thieves and people that would let you work out a set for a couple years and just take it from you and make it their own or Mm. take your premise and your setup and had a different punchline and it was just it was the wild wild west and so I, I I didn't want to accidentally be involved with any of that on my end and then later with success it became me understanding that 
if it takes me five months to work out this material in clubs, I'm hearing my jokes all around the country before I'm ready mm. to, before I've said, hey, I got them in election. I've watched this comedian from here, this comedian from there, and this comedian from there all doing the same version of this thing I'm working on. Yeah. So when it comes to creative, I have to take the onus on it. The beauty is that the method that I have, I learned it when there were no problems. So I learned that I can get great benefits out of rehearsing and practicing because I knew that that's a part of everybody's vocation. If you're a basketball player, practice is part of it. If you're an athlete, practice is what makes perfect. And so um, I was concerned that I wanted every time to be able to deliver this joke the way mm -hmm. I was trying that way I wrote it and set it up the first time. And it's really funny if my leg is pointed this way and I say it with this inflection in my voice and then mm. I pause right here. And to do that a hundred times in 17, 100 city tours means that you need to have worked that out because you know what these ticket prices are to come see your performances. And we expect pinpoint and effort from all of our stars that aren't comedians we 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 understand we go to see a singer that he that we want to see the wardrobe changes mm. we want to see light we want to see fire we expect for them to float out in a boat we expect we expect everything we get as this is what it should be and i always felt that way about comedy because you know i was watching like tim conway and don knotts mm. and people that I felt like we're putting their very essence into every performance, every the Carol Burnett's that I'm watching. I'm everybody that I lauded their craft was about the precision of mm. it. And even you remember, like people used to really break character in a scene and that would be funny. Then people understood that that was funny and start breaking character as the joke. You know what I mean? But yeah. as far as the craft is necessary, you practice in all things you're trying to be great at. And so um, I didn't, when I couldn't get stage time and I was in Oakland, I would go to this platform that was just out on the water of Jack London Square. It was the base for a huge apartment complex they were going to build, but they just had it there for maybe a year. And I every before every show, I would go up for an hour and work out my set and my performances. And so even now, I'm not doing it in a club, but I'm performing this because I'm trying to have this be the best experience. So especially with, you know, the pandemic preventing a lot of interactions, what does like writing the first step of writing look like? Are you writing things down in a notebook? Is it you have things in your head or, you know, how what is you know, that first show, you show up in an arena where you have not worked it out yet. How do you, have you generated the material to know even what you're going to start talking about? Because this is what I do. I'm a joke collector. I'm mm. a collector of my own jokes. Um, I trust 100% that if I think it's funny and I work to make sure it's funny, they'll think it's funny too. Yeah. So the trust there. So at each point, 
I'm having the discussion. See, the problem for me is I write the special, but I'm not going to be shooting the special for nine and a half months later. So I have to write something that is current events, sure, but not so current that this story has changed or been altered or has went a different way or nobody's talking about it no more. I I have to name this special World War Three before mm. nine months before Russia and Ukraine or anybody says it or you know what I mean? Yeah, that's how trademarks work. So I'm yeah. saying I'm trying to collect something, a conversation that will stand the test of time, but is a time capsule for this year, this period mm. of time. I was going through what I thought people like me were going through, what I thought people were not discussing. That That's my conversation. And that way, I'm able to tour with great comedians and never worry about anybody encroaching on my material or me on theirs or, you know, I have a different pattern set up. And I, I would assume that for all artists, that's important, what your routine is, how you set that up. Like, if you don't play basketball, you wonder how they go to the free throw line and make all those free throws. Or you wonder why do they miss so many considering it seems so close for them. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a matter of you're you're living your life and thinking about these ideas, and then so when it comes time to have to do a tour, you have already collected all the ideas, and it's a matter of just putting them together. Yes, I'm I'm constantly curating this experience that I'm in, and and cognizant at all times of the last conversation that we yeah. had when I had a with them trump was the president i was talking about this i was having these conversations this is what i thought was important to be talking about and now when you see me again on the 12 special this is what he's yeah. discussing and it's this topic and you know so that keeps the freshness on my side and you know um Original content is what I can guarantee, no more and no less. I can't give you any guarantees of whether you're going to perceive it to be funny or whether you think it's worth anything or whether I'm your cup of tea. Mm -hmm. But my job is to make sure that I, I, make, I fill the stat box up yeah. comedically. Dion Cole once mentioned on a podcast that he wrote for you though you didn't use any of the material he gave you did you ever use writers do you use writers and if so for any part of the process well you are answer you are one of the best interviewers sir um okay so here's the thing yeah when you hear comics say yeah i wrote for cat williams what they're not telling you is that i hired them to be writers yeah at the time that we're discussing i had a three-picture deal with DreamWorks for Eddie Murphy, co-star in three films with me. Mm. As soon as I had that deal in place and got the money for it, I began to hire people I thought were talented writers to be a part of a writing team. They assumed that they would be writing stand-up. I haven't needed help writing stand-up since it. 1995. <laughs> if you as a comic tell me a good, funny joke, you know what I'm going to tell you? You should tell it. Yeah. No, no, it's for you. Why would it be for me? It sounded funny when you said it. That's your joke. 
you think I need jokes or you think you need jokes? So when I'm hired, when somebody tells you I, they were hired as a writer by me, the intent was for them to write in movie and television projects. And I paid the people whether those happened or didn't happen or what have you. But if I had somebody who was qualified even a little bit to write for me, I would have them write everything. And then when it failed, it would be their fault. Yeah, that makes sense. So... The this joke starts with introducing the title of the special, which is World War Three, which you you said you had before you knew anything about it. The question I have is like this joke, you, you, you introduce the idea of lies versus truth, and then you, you use the chicken example as an example of this dichotomy. Do you start with lies versus truth? And what is an example of that? Or are you starting with I have this idea about chicken wings versus chicken thighs? What is the bigger idea? How does it connect to World War III as a theme? So in my process, the first thing that happens is because I'm a guy who likes to find out what period of time we're in right now and then go back through history and find out when we've been in a period of time like this. Hmm. My job, I'm not smart. My, my job is not to be smart in any conversation. My job is to look at this side, find out what this is, look at this side, find out what that side is and determine where where we lie. Right. Yeah. So when it comes to chicken, I already know that there's an avian bird flu that's getting ready to happen and they're preparing people so that they can see what it is you can live without and what it is that they can get away with. Mm -hmm. I then find an article in scientific journals where they were trying to clone chickens and they had given chickens multiple wings and different things yeah. legitimately just trying see what they could come up with. So I always start out with a factual piece of nugget or information that I feel like my demographic does not know. And then I connect it to something that they do know that they are aware of. And then establish the dots there in case they want to connect those mm. dots. My job is to also though not connect the dots for you. Even if I was anti-vaccine, I would not tell you that. I would tell you that I have no problem with vaccines. I'm just wondering why you never saw the doctors that you trusted so much that put this thing together. Or why do all, are all of us on our seventh vaccine and our 32nd booster and we still got to be worried about the next variant? That's all. But these are the conversations that I'm establishing and then I take the jokes from that subject matter. Yeah, that makes sense. You you know, the, the theme of this joke is sort of truth versus lies. And obviously, truth is a big part of your act. Do you feel like you're at war with lies? Or in terms of artistic authenticity, the, the part of yourself that is compelled to lie that you have to fight against? Does that make sense? Yeah, but I'm trying to do neither. I'm trying to, if you champion the truth side, then I'm trying to show you how powerful the opposition mm. side is. That they're not, nobody's telling lies for no reason. If this is a small child lying, this child is lying to not be in trouble. They don't even know what trouble is. They just don't want to be in it. So yeah. you asked me, did I do the best answer is no, I didn't. No matter what you say or the fact that there's cake all on me, right? So 
in business, though, when a lie is out there, it means that for this burger, it costs us nine cents. But the cost to you is four dollars and ninety nine cents. And their job is to sell you that. That's a great deal. I'd love mm-hmm. to pay five dollars for a burger. I don't have to cook at home. I love this. This is great. The joke has two, especially the beginning, has two very specific act outs. Uh, you say there's a chicken wing shortage, but there's no shortage of chickens. And you do like a march across the stage. And then, you, of course, you do the physicality of a chicken. You have this very specific, obviously it's a podcast, but watch it. You'll see how he does performs a chicken. Are you writing in general, or in this case, do you write to the act outs? Act outs are such a big part of them. How do you incorporate them? How do you figure out? how to make them memorable, how to, you know, like, how do you build that into your act as a process? So the first part of me in my process is just trying to ascertain a subject matter that I can discuss, that I can discuss freely without sounding like anybody else in comedy who's had a conversation this way. Yeah. That's step one. Step two, then, is for uh, the comedian to come in and make sure that this has the elements necessary for this to be a joke. Hmm. The third part of the process is the physical comedian who I need to tell this story if there was no sound Hmm. and if there was no visual or if there's no visual and you're just hearing this or if so um the if there's that walk across the stage is for the amount of time that that, that takes mm. it's for the redirection of you understanding wait a minute that guy just said over here that there's a shortage of chicken wings but there's not a shortage of chickens so now in physicality, when you're trying to say, hold up, wait a minute, you go from this side to that side. Mm. That means hold up, wait a minute. And now I'm now taking you physically through it. Remind yourself what a chicken looks like. It only has two wings and two thighs. <laughs> so how somebody tell you we got a shortage of wings and we got plenty of thighs? No, that makes sense. I'm not smarter than my audience. I My job is to show mm-hmm. what it is trying to discuss. So yeah. that last element is the physicality part. And then timing and yeah. comes after that. But I'm doing, I'm doing each thing in a different pacing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, at a different so I'm going through and getting the subject matter and the what what conversation happens after this conversation? Where does this connect to that? That all comes after physicality has been added. There, my favorite line in this in this joke is uh, every time a chicken's foot hits the ground, somebody wants to put that bitch in grease. And in general, you have a way with words either like these kind of lines like this, or you'll have ways of saying specific words. Like you'll say the word everything. It'll be like five syllables long. Are you, are, is that scripted? Is it just the nature of how you talk? Is it a matter of like, is it musicality? Is it like, oh, if I say it this way, that hits different. How, how do you approach that part of the sort of like the, the signature of 
the way that you speak. When you see Kat, opposed to me and you talking right now, obviously it's a, a different sort of way of talking. Right. Um, I might have read 30 to 40,000 books in my life. Um, mm. If you are a lover of books, there are cadence and uh, a movement when you're reading good material and um uh, even even in social media age uh, if if the text comes from somebody we all know if the tweet comes from somebody if the post comes from somebody we all know we can hear it in their voice um it's it's my my job i'm a i'm a public official as a comedian and i'm a journalist and i'm a chronicler and mm. i'm 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 from shakespeare i'm from mark twain i'm from i'm i'm from uh, musical storytellers i'm from the griots i'm supposed to i'm supposed to you're supposed to be able to live within what i'm presenting because yeah. i talk for a and if that means that i say everything because you understand that that's hitting every syllable of the thing you're saying. It means all parts of it. It means, it, and I don't have to say that. If I can say it correctly, yeah. you'll know the difference between that and everything. This is, as you said, your 12th special. Why, why have you oriented your stand-around filmed hours that you, you keep on putting together specials, releasing specials, putting together specials, opposed to I'll tour for a while and I'll get us and I'll do a special whenever, whenever, opposed to getting on this sort of pace of every few years, every couple years, I'm, I'm creating a set. It has a name. It's building to a special. I'm creating a set. It's building a name, going to a special. It's, it's that already either way you look at it. If I waited two years to do each one, it means I have to be in the business for 24 years and have 12 specials. I've been in the business 24 years and I have 12 specials. It's not why I have that many specials. It's why don't other comedians have it. And when I came to comedy, comedians had an hour and they would do that bitch for 10 years. Yeah. The same hour they went all across the globe the same set and it was okay and they hired bum comedians to open up for them so they could look better but they were telling the same jokes over and over and over and over and over again and I got tired of complaining it so me and my comrades decided that we will break this cycle we will do so much new material every time you see me it'll be a new hour and now you can't do your old stuff anymore because the precedence has been set now and now mm -hmm. the audience will not tolerate you and doing that same boring weak set you had before even if it was great we already saw you do it do something else we were the curators of that uh, in our lane and so we're very proud of that then that meant that we had to consistently be putting out a televised hour that we wrote, owned, and um, toured successfully. And in this case, this is the first special you directed, I believe. Why did you choose to direct it? How did that change how you approached any of it? <laughs> well, I should have done the sound in hindsight, but um, I'm always just trying to do something different than I've already shown. So I don't have to take it personally if you tell me that I um, just had a strikeout 
and that that's what it was. I don't have any feelings involved in that. I understand that I'm the league leader in strikeouts, and I'm okay with that because I'm also the league leader in home runs as well. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to have more specials than anybody breathing or dead. So <laughs> I, I'm not allowed to be concerned with the work. I'm putting out the work to be mm -hmm. judged and criticized and liked or disliked to be viewed or unviewed. However, that goes in this business. The customer is always right in my eye. Yeah. Um, this joke ends with a, a section where you, you talk about people who believe in science and people who believe in religion. And it's not less as much a debate, but those two ideas, the ideas of science and religion, have been themes that have come in and out of your specials. How do you make sure to have, as you say, your stand-up be an ongoing conversation, but also to make sure each special feels distinct while also making it a continuation? You know what I mean? Like To make sure each special feels like its own thing, but also part of this one conversation. If you have a friend or some friends that you only really see once a year, then you know exactly how it goes. Mm. We know what we talked about last time. When I see you this time, we're going to spend all our time with me catching you up with what went on in this space of time since I last saw you. And then you're going to do the same. And that is the relationship that I'm in. So the hardest thing I have to do is I just did an hour and then I just took it to a hundred cities and performed it. And now I have to unremember every single one of those jokes mm. and never tell those jokes. And because I have moved on to this new conversation. So uh, I only care about the people that watch what I do. Mm. And Oh, if they see me fail, they will see me fail miserably, but they will not doubt it if I was giving it everything that I had or if I was trying. They, no. if, if you go to the NBA game and your team loses, do you get a refund? No. I, I'm saying if they ask you, yeah. you would say you paid to come see them win, right? Mm -hmm. So when you pay to come see your team and your team get blown out by 30, do you get any type of refund at the concession stand? How does that work? Do you go back to Will Call, get your money back? This wasn't the experience you paid for? No. You're coming to watch it be played. Mm. I'm a player. I'm at all times playing for a win and doing the best that I can to uphold what we call the brand. If the brand is original comedy that has a truthful slant, that is one foot in the street and one foot on ethereal topics, I love it. Yeah. It, whatever it is, my job is to make sure that this product and this craft is worthy of being a special. Because I, I understand what you're saying, but when I was doing stand-up comedy, having a one-hour stand-up special was the criteria that we were all judged by. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't until I started putting up the numbers that suddenly <laughs> that's no conversation no more. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm saying once you understand you can't please everybody, then you're supposed to move directly on to, I can do my best to please who I can please though. Yeah. So uh, that's what the continued conversation has been for me. 
We'll be right back with Cat Williams, where we talk about his mastery of sex jokes and the real story of how he got his name. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Now back to Cat Williams talking about his career-long love affair with his audience. What you're describing is partly like you have a trust between you and your audience. It's almost a collaboration between you and your audience in terms of participating in this conversation. You are talking, but they are committed to listening. Is there a moment where you realized how close you were to your audience? You know, you'll sometimes say that there's a love story. You'll call them family in this. When did you sort of have that moment where you fell in love or realized it was this sort of special thing well for like two decades unlike most comedians i really only sold all of my tickets from one place so if i don't say the name of this one place i could tell you that this one place delivers all the analytics Mm. so if i tell you that i got more females in my audience than any comedian in america I'm not blowing smoke up your tail. Ticketmaster tells me who bought every ticket, how many tickets they bought and where they live in proximity from the venue. Tells me your age and a whole bunch of other stuff that one would need to know to figure out who they're servicing. And I pride myself on the fact that I can say at my audience, Where's the white people and you're going to hear a roar? Where's the black people and you're going to hear a roar? Where you hear, and I can hit any one of them and you're going to hear the representation because I don't speak to a group. I mm. speak to the group. I'm a member of the group. If I do something stupid, we talk about what I did stupid. If somebody else did something stupid, we talk about that. If crazy things are what. The discussion is, I think this is something that affects all of us. And Mm. I think this is how I'm looking at it. How do you look at it? Is everybody aware of this? Am I the only one seeing this? It's that type of, and in every good relationship, it's about communication. You know, I don't want to talk about something that you can't get, but Mm. I also am not going to waste time for an hour 
telling you a bunch of stuff you already know and giving you a bunch of thoughts and premises that any run-of-the-mill comedian has already explored ad nauseum. I would rather talk about something that you wish I didn't talk about and you go, oh, I want to talk about that. I would rather that than give you a, my variation of a joke that 30 comics have already done. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, the demographics of the audience. I want to ask about that first the women thing you're very proud of how how much of your audience is female especially compared to your peers why do you think that is what about your life experience do you think set you up for that i think you can do anything that you try to do on purpose i think anything that matters to you you show that it matters by how you are and so i I'm not proud of the fact that my female audience is bigger than theirs. Mm -hmm. I recognize that stand-up comedy is the only business where the entire comedy audience is 80% women. Mm -hmm. Not my audience. Everyone's audience is 80% women. There's not no group of six dudes nowhere that go to comedy clubs because that's their thing. <laughs> this is driven by women. This is a place women want to be taken to on dates and outings or they want to go with their girlfriends. This is a place where you come in feeling okay and you leave out feeling better than you came. And other than a comedy club, it's not a lot of places that can guarantee that being your experience. Yeah. So, um, uh, but, but were I, you, I guess I'm my, one, wondering if you were around, mother, oh, sorry. Yeah. My mother was a woman. I've raised daughters. I'm, if I have to pick my favorite thing on the planet, it's a woman. So I can be biased that way. It's a blessing to be biased that way and to feel like that way and have 80% of your income be driven by women. That's all. I, I still got 46% of um, males. That's not the point. The point is that I would think that for a male, the most important thing to him, too, would be a woman. Mm -hmm. And if we don't feel like that and we don't operate like that, then Roe versus Wade could be reversed for all we know. You have been open about your successes and your shortcomings with your audience. What, you know, in so much as trust goes both ways, what did it mean for you to be open about sort of th your failings, especially like I think in Priceless, you really get into it and have your audience still embrace you, have them still be there, have you accept you as a flawed person as much as a person who's able to entertain them? That is the storyline for any movie we've ever seen. That's the storyline. Almost all religious lessons is that is that. What do you mean this is what you do when you're flawed and people still support? No, no, no. We're all flawed. There is no such thing as the person that cannot fall down. There's only a such thing as a person who did not get up. I'm showing you trampoline skin. I'm showing you that it doesn't matter what they say. If they don't say I'm dead, then they have already said I'm coming. And this is something... I'm trying to foster and be a part of and um, give credence to is, is that part of it is that no, 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 no. The, the, you, your Instagram is a lie. You, you are only posting 
when you're feeling good and looking good and everything's great. Mm -hmm. So now on your timeline is this collection of times you were great. Well, that's fine, but that's nobody's real life. Yeah. Life is, you know, it's the other parts in there as well that are a part of real life. And so since I'm in a job where I could criticize other people or other situations or other things and offer my stupid, meaningless opinion about things, I am obligated to be transparent because I can't, you know, who am I to call Joe Biden to task for a joke? You close every special talking about sex and or vaginas or something or things in that area. You're a master at it. Allegedly hearsay. Objection. Do more fucking. <laughs> Didn't that sound simple? Do more fucking. It'll change your life. Do it. If you single, you should be fucking every chance you get. Just in case. You never know. And if you're in a relationship, do more fucking. And women, I'm not talking to y'all. I know y'all are always ready, ready, ready. <laughs> talking to men. We only want to give her perfect dick. No, give her all the dicks. <laughs> give her happy dick, sad dick, angry dick. She loves angry dick. She, I don't know what done got in them. But this is finally what I've been talking about right here. This is exactly. What about it has allowed it to continue to be such a muse for you? I know it's a silly question, but like you were so clearly inspired by this parts of humanity. What is it? Okay, so watch this. Why is it that on all the great movies before they get to the end, there's this part where everybody sings and dancing happens. And even if it doesn't happen in the movie, we do it in the uh, afters credits like yeah, yeah. bloopers and, and why? Because that's infectious. And that means that if they're doing it, the audience is doing that on their way out. And who doesn't want to leave the audience dancing on their mm. way out? My pursuit in each conversation is not to talk about something and have all the black people get what I'm saying and everybody else be like, what? Or mm. talk or, or on the white people get it and everybody else is what that is not the conversation i'm in i need to have a conversation that i know is important to us relevant to us and can be helpful to us every time i leave a comedy show and i'm ending it in the way that you're saying regardless of what's going on what i am encouraging you to do is have sex later <laughs> and laugh about the fact that you're going to do it. <laughs> I mentioned briefly, when you do have, when you're doing sex material and you have sex with the stool, when you hump the stool, when you, again, as I said, you're the, you are the king of that specific type of joke. How do you approach that? What is the secret to making that always new and original? I'm not going to confirm nor deny that anything you said is true. Okay. I I don't have the thought process. Um, when I am talking about sex, it's not about the stool. It's about the fact that I am qualified to talk about sex because mm. everybody that woman that's watching knows that I do know how to participate in the activity. 
that I'm good at it. And that just like in comedy, I work very, very hard. And I think the customer, she is always right. I'm not trying to, uh, I've never mentioned size. I'm only talking about intent when I talk about it. And I only talk about how magnificent it is. And yes, sometimes I consensually share with a stool just to um, <laughs> use whatever I'm trying to sell. But um, women will not allow a man to talk about sex for extended periods of time if they don't believe that he's any good at it. In their head, women will go, what would you know about pussy anyway? <laughs> If that alone was my brand and signature, I'd be proud of that just because um, I, I don't do any of the fart, doo-doo, yeah. hey, what happened to me, fish out of water. I don't do any of those elements in my stand-up. Um, yeah. I don't. I no longer talk about family things or um, in, in everyday interactions or, man, you know, I had to fly. It's crazy on a plane. I don't do any of those. You know, I leave all of those conversations. I'm only looking for difficult conversations. Mm. If you would open with that joke, then I'm definitely closing with it. If yeah. you think it's a closing joke, I would open with that. If you think that, I, yeah. You stopped talking about family partly because you felt it is covered enough and you wanted to, you are skilled enough that you should be talking about more difficult things. The fam, you know, I was wondering that if, if it was because of that or if there was certain feelings about how much of your own family's life you wanted to share. Well, I was able to hide 10 kids through that period without them being on the internet. So I was clearly successful the way that worked. Um, plus I didn't want to have to deliver any downers. Like I might've been telling the jokes about a child and that child might've passed away and I never said anything mm -hmm. because I don't have, I don't, I'm not updating you on the real lives of real people. Mm -hmm. I can save that for some as a family and they're a comedian and they got two kids. Yeah. I got, 10 kids, seven of them are adopted. And I got a whole different, if I start talking about family stuff, I'm just going to be the family comedian. And I, I, that would lead you to knowing who they are yep. and knowing stuff about them, people that in no way should be comic fodder, you know? So that that's sense. what made me steer away from some things. And then I just made a list of things that I cannot talk about because this is everybody else's lane of conversation. Yeah. I it has to pass my criteria, make it to my set that I don't think anybody's saying this or talking about mm -hmm. this. I don't think it's open with this. I don't think this would be anybody's middle. I don't think yeah, that's that makes part sense. of the job. I'm interested in comedians who give themselves names different than the names they were born with and sort of how the onstage versus offstage persona is not unlike superheroes with secret identities for the listeners who doesn't know um believe i believe this is the story that in the 90s your son dropped a bottle on you and it knocked out your two front teeth which made you start wearing a hat that would cast a shadow over the front of your mouth which inspired you to go by cat in the hat williams which got short into cat williams now decades later that you've been known by this at least publicly do you feel like you 
our Cat Williams. Is is Cat just who you are on stage? Do you feel like Cat is who you really are, and at home you can't be Cat? You know what I mean? Like, who is Micah? Who is Cat? Okay, so yeah, I um, this is really important. So yeah, I almost all of that is true, and yet together none of that makes any sense or could possibly be true whatsoever so um the fact that um i was conceived at the catskills mountains Mm. and they went to the catskills and they went to the sierra mountains so that is how cat and sierra are both my middle names and um i I go by my first name because that's was my son's name and he's not a junior. Mm. Um, so yeah, I never had nothing to do with that. I was cat in the hat the entire time. I got a cease and desist letter from Disney before I had ever made $10,000 in standup and was considering quitting because I couldn't make a living. And they sent a broke comedian a cease and desist from the biggest corporation in the globe. And I said, if Disney even knows I exist, I'm going to make it. But they were very clear. I couldn't use cat in the hat or any variation of it, which is why it just went to Cat Williams, which is why it's on my identification and on my birth certificate, because that's his name. Mm. I was trying to have a name, and they wouldn't allow me to have a stage name. So now how that how that goes to the teeth thing, I'm not sure. But yes, my son was nine months old, and that happened. But they got broke out two weeks before I have to do my very first movie Mm. and I have to do this audition and I have to get this movie and I have to, and this could change my life and I can't do it because I have teeth issues that I got to fix. So it is me using the money that I got to get it fixed while also doing the part while under that condition. Um, this is somebody who is being given the opportunity to not do something, but is doing it, uh, even if it means ridicule. Because mm-hmm. there's a whole story, even today, like, oh, yeah, you used to be broken, didn't have any teeth. No, I don't have any yeah. recollection of that. Neither do you. From the first time that I was a stand up, I have been progressing. I've never, as a man, I've never had a bank loan or a car loan. So you're mm-hmm. not. Gonna be able to like you know anything about me. You don't know what college I went to, and you don't know what high school I went to because I didn't go to neither. I was accepted to college before I was eleven years old. I'm not on your time. Yeah. So that part of the story that's all put out there as a way to discredit. It don't have nothing to do with my story. Got it. Uh, my parents names are in my first special my parents are there i'm in cincinnati where i'm from like there's no it wasn't a stage name like a jamie fox or you know like well, I jay guess leno in in retrospect are you happy that you didn't go by the stage name that you didn't have to go by cat in the hat like are you happy that it's your name that it's you is the person you are at home and the life that you're living is the life of the comedian that you're seeing um, n- no, he, 
he was going to be the product regardless of what the name was, but I didn't prefer. Um, yeah, I understand there was a lot of comedians that started wearing hats after that. And you couldn't wear hats because they would tell you it would put the shadow on the face. Remember, it doesn't make any sense that I would have been wearing hats because it would put a shadow on my face and that would hide two teeth. How did that work with a guy talking on the mic? This was in the New Yorker. So I was like, that had to be fact checked. So I was like, it didn't make any sense to me. But I was like, this is why I asked the questions. I had an interviewer say that he thought I did uh, cocaine the whole time. And I went, well, how many how many cities do I need to go to before I overdose? I'm, <laughs> I'm making a million dollars a month. I'm not going to mess up at no point. Like, I'm, I've never been in possession of anything other than weed. Where does some of this get started? Because nobody has these type of bio issues when they've been in 60 movies, 55 television programs, have more specials than any comedian breathing or dead, have never been funded or financed, have only done one commercial in 29 years. Like, what? Yikes. I get it. Um. I heard you in the interview, you said you talked about accepting your status as a legend during the pandemic, that something about having the time to look back on your career, you accepted it. And I want to ask a little bit about that meeting coming up, growing up, who were legends to you? You named some already, but who who were the legendary standups to you? And what does it mean for you to be in the conversation with those people? Okay, so part of how I feel is based upon the fact that I never wanted to be a comedian. I was never trying to get into comedy. I didn't see people doing stand up and thought, oh, I can do that too. Like, I never had none of that experience. I loved comedy and I loved people that I thought did it well. I didn't care if they were black or white or if I agreed with them or didn't, if they were male or female. I enjoyed the craft and seeing people do it at a high level. I never, I didn't even know that you could make a living telling jokes until I was 22 years old. Hmm. I had never even heard that 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 was i'm saying i'm from ohio we knew jonathan winters but he's on the radio i i'm later finding out how magical this dude is and what he's having to do and i'm at this point in my life i probably had read a thousand biographies already because until i was like 20 i never read um fiction i only read non-fiction so i would just you know what I mean? Like, I didn't need to know anything about your life to read your 400 page autobiography. I just wanted more examples of people living and what happened to them. And yeah. how did this go? How, you know what I mean? So there's only love in my comedy upbringing. Every, I, I thought Richard Pryor was exactly what he was. I understood that it was okay if he did cocaine or who he slept with or who he married or how none of that mattered. I, I understood that he had to be that in order to have those conversations. I got it. I understood what I was seeing when I'm watching Eddie Murphy do nine characters in one production and then yeah. produce it 
act in it and write it and I'm understanding. So I, I, I learned from all of the greats comedically that I could come in contact with in person or physically. And um, I didn't make it because any comedy guy saw me and put me on tour or anybody put me as part of their camp or any of that. I was just attempting to be the best comedian that I could be. And so what is it like now that you had time to reflect upon that you've you are now talked about in that way, right? It's like the comedians that you looked up to now comedians talk about you that way. Well, the realization of that didn't take the pandemic for me to understand. It was the fact that my humility is not for no reason. My humility allows me to continue to do the best job that I can do. Even if I was just successful, the humility means I got to be successful again or else a failure. Mm -hmm. Or if the last one was a failure, the humility goes, yeah, it was a failure. You're a failure. Do better. This next one is the best one I've ever done. So that's a part of it for me Mm -hmm. is... um, I'm not a perfectionist because I've never seen anybody be perfect. I only know about to do the best job you can that make sure that your intentions are 100% pure. Make sure that your work ethic leads to what it is you're trying to do. Have you considered your audience? Mm -hmm. What do they think? We're wrapping up, so it's time for the final segment of the show, which is called The Laughing Round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's a pod- comedy podcast, I call it a laughing round. Shorter answers, uh, shorter questions. You could pass if you don't have an answer to one because there's, they're, they're short. You'll get it. I love it. I'm sure I know the answer is going to be no to this one, but I need to ask it because I ask everybody. Is there a joke you saw another comedian do and you wish you could you wish you thought of it is you wish oh i wish i had thought of that joke first that i could have done it at any point in your career i promise this is going to shock you every single year as long as i've ever been doing comedy because you got to understand how i do comedy remember if you do a great joke that means i can't even talk about that anymore Mm -hmm. so yes a homage and go oh greatness beautiful that's that somebody wrote that, sir. I don't know who it was. Somebody put effort into that. Now that's a real joke. And I understand that that has taken off of my list as well. So yeah, I give it up often. Can you often. think of an example of one that stands out of like, oh, and that you're like, that was really one that I loved? Uh, yeah, my brain doesn't allow me to really pull up comedians. Got it and stuff like that it's not that it's it's um i applaud a brilliant joke like like i could have just given you five names of the people that were on tour with me and i could give you one from every single one of them this is the one i could tell you could name anybody's tour or you could randomly name a comedian and i can tell you exactly what it was from them i could do it that but Okay, what's, have, uh, what's your favorite Lunel? Lunel, I think, opened on this last tour. Do you remember a, a Lunel joke that you like? Okay, so with Lunel, Lunel always has a joke that intersects mine at some point where she has thought about this thing and now she's got a joke about it. And I will have had a joke 
uh, rooted there. Hmm. So the difference is between the Cat Williams 600 pound life joke where I talk about that show yeah. and what she does with that same conversation are literally planets apart. Mm. And if I had had the brilliance of her perspective, I would have added that to my joke and it would have been a mega joke. And I yeah. feel that way when Chappelle lands, I feel that way. Um, uh, if Kevin Hart does it, if Michael Blackson could figure it out, anybody mm. that can ever get close a good joke I, i'm a fan of the it, it would be like another basketball player saying hey that wasn't a good shot like what we always wreck we always say when the shot went in we don't ever act like you airballed when you swished and we don't act like you swished when you airballed we call it the shots sense. um yeah. do you have a short story uh, that you're willing to share of an interaction with a legendary another a different legendary comedian living or dead that you'd be willing to share with us a short story. Okay, so um, I'll let you pick. Okay. Uh, let's pick uh, John Witherspoon or Charlie Murphy or so many great comedians. Ronaldo Ray. There's so many. I don't know how to do this. Um, so, well, tell, yeah. well, you named two already. So you tell your Charlie Murphy story. And depending on time, tell your John Witherspoon story. Excellent. So when I came across Charlie Murphy, I thought that I knew exactly who I was in comedy, what I represented, what my flaws and weaknesses were. I thought I had the best handle on dealing with fame and celebrity and propaganda and all sorts of things. And when I met Charlie Murphy, it changed um, everything that I thought. Mm. Uh, he was a guy, who, literally the most gangster dude in the room at all times and could physically whoop everybody's ass in there and was a person that always thought joke first. And like, understand that I understood when I was around Patrice O'Neill that this was something that ain't even on this planet for real. Like this is a black Sam Kennison mm. in another form. This whole, like I've been blessed to be around some people that are just um, magnificent and to be a great comic, you gotta be a great person. Mm. And um, it doesn't mean that only great things happen to you. Uh, I watched Charlie Murphy beat every single thing that could break a person. He would eat it up. Like, you follow what I'm saying? Like a yeah. cancer diet was literally something that he would laugh at. Mm. You know what I mean? And like, just... Uh, a one of a kind individual, the same with John Witherspoon, to just know a guy who, when he was young, was the first black male model in the country. I didn't know that. So imagine a dude being like one of the only people in the black community that's a man that gets paid to model. Mm -hmm. Imagine going from 
that to being in your 50s and 60s and solidifying yourself where comedically you can play the father to any funny participants that you have just to see people go through these periods of mm. time and to always be better while maintaining what made them authentic. I, all of my short stories are about these great comedians and how wonderful it is when we get a chance to know them because we never know how things are going to work out. We don't know yeah. how long we got like as a comedy guy, like we understand what they do to our people and their own mind. Mm. Um, but the industry is nothing without comedy. Yeah. If comedy is removed from movie, TV and entertainment, entertainment cannot stand. Mm. It cannot. And it doesn't matter if it's a rom-com variation, whatever it is, comedy is king. And so um, I, I'm blessed to be able to know all of the people that practitioner in it. In comedy, you either suck or you don't. And I am honored to know all the comedians that don't suck and um, that make it a part of their business every day to not suck that next time they're on stage. Yeah. Would you ever host Saturday Night Live? They've done impressions of you over the last few years. Would you ever host? They've done, they've done seven impressions of me and hired four of my staff members for their staff over this course of time. And when you have other celebrities impersonating me, that means everybody knows who I am. The fact that in this amount of time, you've never given me an invitation to host or anything on Saturday Night Live is more indicative of anything else, I think. Yeah. Uh, this should be the last one. We'll see how this goes. Um, do you have a joke or a bit or something that you tried at some point in your career that you thought was good, but every time you work, did in front of an audience, it sort of didn't work, but you will always think that was funny. The audiences were wrong. I bl really believe in this joke. They're right. I mean, I'm right. They're wrong. No, I've never even heard of the concept. It sounded foreign when you were saying it. No, no. If I get I don't. The customer is always right. If they say it sucks, it sucked. If they said it was great, it's great. If they laugh, it's funny. If they don't laugh, how did that make it in there? It's not a joke. So, no, I don't have experience with that. I don't. Um, I can make a mistake in how I wrote something or how I worded something or, um, but my job is not that part. I'm allowed to do that in, in my relationship. I don't want fake laughter. If they don't laugh, I made a mistake and we take that out. Um, that is, that's quality control. But I've done so much of that, that in order to beat me now, they have to mess up my audio and trash my stuff and still put it out and try to make me look bad at this point. But yeah, no, I, um, I, I believe that they're always in charge, even if it's just night to night. I don't believe in a bad audience. I'll end with this one. This is easy one. Do you have any advice for an, a person who wants to do comedy? No one pays you other than the audience. That is your allegiance. Promoters don't pay you. There is no agencies that pay you. Even Netflix themselves, they don't have a stand-up special department where you go to and they help you with specials and they walk you through the process. It's, it's, it's not like that. You have to have trust and faith in, in something. 
And in business, if you're going to sell burgers, then you have to have faith and trust in your burger supplier. Hmm. You are the joke supplier. If you are funny and the audience has told you that you are funny, you find out what it is they find funny about you and you service them to the best of your ability. If a joke may not be funny, try it anyway. If it's not funny enough, make it funny enough. You're writing these jokes. You're you're at a point going, okay, bam, funny. And then you're stopping. But you're the creator. You're supposed to stop at that punchline and go further. Then try to figure out now, if a dumb person hears this, how will they take it? Okay, well, if a smart person heard it, what would they say? Okay, if a racist heard it, what would they say? This is part of your own quality control that they don't tell you as a comedian, but you are your product. Mm. And so if you focus on your customer and your product, even when you fail, it, you'll fail spectacularly. It'll be number three in the country and you'll uh, do better next time. But you want to be a champion no matter what the score is, if possible. That's my advice. Beautiful. Thank you so, so, again, it's an honor. Thank you so, so much for doing this. It really means so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, I don't get interviewed by many people, but it was a pleasure. You were prepared and thorough, and I would want you to interview somebody I wanted to know something about, especially committed. Close to you. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch World War Three and Great America on Netflix. Follow Kat on social media at Kat Williams. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one.